is episode 153 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Signal Transduction in Stem Cells and Cancer with Dr. Stefan Anji. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Daylon James and Dr. Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. A few weeks ago, we aired the third and final episode of our ISSCR miniseries where we heard four junior trainees who attended the 2019 annual meeting compete against one another for the best one-minute breakdown of their research. Listeners took to Twitter to vote for their favorite, and the results are in. Aaron Sandoval, an undergraduate researcher at the University of Florida, took home first place with 251 votes. Aaron, we have a prize coming your way, but for those of you who haven't had a chance to listen to his spiel yet, go back and check it out. Today, we have Dr. Stefan Angi from the University of Toronto on the podcast to talk about his research into the intracellular signaling pathways that control the renewal and activation of stem cells. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news coming up. But first, are you on social media? Should you be? Should Dalon be? Watch Stem Cell Technologies' Christina McBurney, Manager of Scientific Communications, and Leanna Bedell, so Senior Social Media Specialist, discuss how you can use social media as a scientist to advance your own scientific career in an on-demand webinar Visit www.stemcell.com slash social media to learn more. Yeah, maybe I should get on social. We got to unpack that at another time, though, Arun, because right now we're unpacking the fetal liver. And the first piece of our roundup, we got to talk about the fetal liver. You know, it's, it's, there's a lot to it. Uh, it's really about the blood. There's a blood story. Halloween's coming up. You know me. I'm the count. I love it. Um... Mostly because the blood is the source of all things, you know. It's the, 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 the red blood cells that we all think about, but it's the immunity. It's the immune cells that are making a big splash in medicine right now with the CAR T and all that other stuff. And these blood and immune cells, they develop very, very early in embryogenesis. In order to grow, you need the blood, right? So it's one of the first things that happens. And most of our understanding of this process, as you would imagine, most of our understanding of most biological processes we glean from the mouse and that's a bit of an issue um, but it's necessary right because you don't have a lot of human tissue laying around much less human fetal tissue very scarce but of course it's important to look at the human system because there's notable differences between the mouse and the human mostly we need to look at the human system because we got to understand how this system works it's pertinent to disease to understanding you know, immunodeficiency, childhood leukemia, anemia. These are all things that happen very, very early. We've got to understand these things. Also, just to understand how you can expand these early progenitor stem cells because of, you know, a lot of stem cell technologies, they incorporate hematopoietic stem cells in their derivatives, right? All right, so let's go to the timeline. How does the blood come to be? The earliest cells... They originate actually outside the embryo in the human system that happens in the yolk sac between two and three weeks after conception. All right, then at around between three and four weeks post-conception, you get these famous definitive hematopoietic stem cells that emerge in the aorta, 
gonad mesonephros, these so-called AGM hematopoietic stem progenitor cells. Uh, and these, both of these populations, the yolk sac and the AGM cells, they colonize a lot of fetal tissues, most notably the liver. All right? And then you get fetal bone marrow colonized at around 11 weeks, much later, uh, post-conception. And 20 weeks post-conception, fetal bone marrow is the primary site of hematopoiesis, the dominant site. So you have this window, okay? You have this window of fetal liver hematopoiesis between around four to six weeks and beyond, to about 20 weeks. Uh, and that's what we're looking at here. It took a whole league of people. Remember our boy Bertie Gotkins, Arun? Yeah. Oh, of course, Bertie. We talked to him just a bit ago. Um, this is a, a story coming out of his center, you know, his place, Cambridge, although there's a bunch of other people. He's also on the paper. It took four lead author correspondings on this because it, it took a lot of work, you know, from Sam Benjadi at the Genome Campus, Eliza Laurenti in hematology, Sarah Teichman, who is in theory of condensed matter. Wow. Because they had to do some kind of inferential timeline and differentiation trajectories there. And then they had Muslifa Hanifa, who's the final author there from dermatology. And we're going to come around to where derm plays in there. Anyway, what they did here is they looked at the fetal liver. They unpacked the fetal liver by looking with single cell seek at fetal liver cells between 7 and 17 weeks post-conception. All right, This is the window where liver is everything in human fetal hematopoiesis. They looked at approximately 140,000 liver cells and then 74,000 skin cells, all right? And this is where the derm comes in. 74,000 skin, kidney, and yolk sac cells. And they used this whole analysis to pin down the repertoire of human blood and immune cells that emerged during development from the fetal liver and these other uh, sites. Uh, and from this, here comes in Sarah Teichman with theory condensed matter, I'm guessing. They infer the differentiation trajectories from hematopoietic stem and multipotent progenitors and evaluated the influence of this tissue microenvironment on the development of these cells. Looking at, and here's where the skin comes in, looked at, uh, found that physiological erythropoiesis occurs in the fetal skin. Um, and they also uh, found that there was a shift in the co composition of the fetal liver during gestation from, from mostly erythroid cells, just powering that growth, the oxygenation of the system. Uh, and that uh, sh also was accompanied by a change in the differentiation potential. And then they went in and validated that. That was Elisa Laurenti looking at the hematology there to functionally validate those cells. Fundamentally, this is a, a you know, big analysis. Took a lot of people, a lot of cells, a lot of single cell seek uh, to pretty much establish a blueprint for understanding and studying pediatric blood and immune disorders. Also, I think this is going to be a really important resource moving forward for understanding how we can manipulate hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells in vitro to expand them for therapeutic ends. Arun, I mean, this is a huge study coming out of Cambridge. A lot of big data. You're a big data guy. I'm kind of drowning in the big data nowadays, but this is a story where you can see where it dovetails well with the therapeutic endpoint. Yeah, I mean, I noticed that one of the authors here is uh, Aviv Regev, who is, you know, really an, a world leader when it comes to all things single cell 
transcriptomic analysis. I mean, you look at the numbers here, and it's 140,000 liver and 74,000 skin, kidney, and yolk sac cells, right? I mean, that's like exponentially greater than what we've been able to do, like even within the last like you know five-ish years. Just so I think a lot of this is being driven by the technology, right? So single-cell technology has come a long, long way, and you know if you're able to keep increasing these numbers and get really good data as a result, I think the sky's the limit. Yeah, increased resolution. I'm waiting for a paper that comes out with a million cells, and then I'll pay attention. Next up, we got organoids. Back into organoids. I know how, how much you love organoids, Dalon. It love seems them. like we've been talking about organoids for forever now, right? It's all the rage, right? So this is a paper coming out of Inhuman Parks Lab, and it's titled Engineering of Human Brain Organoids with a Functional Vascular-like System. So this is pretty important. Right. I mean, organoids are these little you know, clumps of cells, clumps of stem cells, clumps of whatever types of cells. Right. But there there's a limitation. There's a limitation in terms of how big they can get without actually, you know, a vasculature. And this is sort of dovetailing on some of the work that, you know, related to what Dr. Alison Mouatri is working on. Right. With brain organoids. So engineering brain organoids with a functional vascular system. So we know the human brain is composed of a bunch of different cell types, including neurons, astrocytes, oligodendrocytes, and microglia, and so on, right? And so we want to be able to better understand human brain development and disease mechanisms because there's not a whole lot of primary human tissues from the brain that are available for these types of analyses, right? They're, they're limited in the, in the availability. So, of course, you have human cortical organoids, which have emerged as potentially a way to kind of, you know, uh, bridge the gap a little bit between, you know, brain, real brain tissue and, you know, surrogate brain tissue, right? So we can use these human cortical organoids to study brain development, sort of, you know, like I said, similar to what Dr. Alison Watry is doing, too. And, you know, we have pretty good three-dimensional brain organoids, but there are limitations. And a big one is, of course, as I mentioned, a lack of functional blood vessels. So there's also limitation in microglia and also the formation of distinct cortical layers. So the vascular system, you need one, right? You need one to actually make these organoids reach their full potential. And under long-term culture, these millimeter-scale organoids undergo apoptosis at the innermost regions, right? The nutrients aren't able to get to the very middle of these organoids. So there have been a lot of efforts to implement vascular structures in human brain organoids. There, for example, you can transplant them potentially into mice to induce the outgrowth of mouse blood vessels into human tissue, which can increase survival and maturation. But I think what these folks were able to, to uh, attempt to do over at, uh, over at Yale was to basically engineer, you know, overexpress a specific, a particular gene, ETV2, which can actually induce the formation of a vascular network in these organoids. So they hypothesized that the ETV2 expression can create the formation of endothelial cells and vascular-like structures in these human cortical organoids. So how do they do it? They actually vary the ratio of different cells that are expressing ETV2 from like 5 up to 20% and also changed up the induction time to see if there's an optimal condition for the formation of these vascular-like structures. 
And then they wanted to see if these vascular-like structures in their ETV2 expressing organoids are actually functional. So they evaluated endothelial characteristics at day 30 all the way down to day 120 of differentiation. And their results were showing that both the cortical and human, the, both the control and the vascularized human cortical organoids can differentiate to a similar extent and acquire the morphological features of, you know, cortical structures. But they wanted to see what's the advantage of the vascularized network actually overexpressing ETV2 in this in their organoids. So they looked at the organization of the endothelium and the vascular networks, and they did your, you know, your standard CD31 endothelial marker stain. You know, that's kind of a canonical marker for endothelial cells, right? And they actually found that they're being expressed in these vascularized human cortical organoids, whereas, you know, as you might expect, in the controls, they didn't really have these these tubes, right? So the vascular human cortical organoids had significantly more blood vessel area and blood vessel length. And overall, the ETV2 induction had a consistent generation of organoids with vascular architectures. The next thing they actually did was look at the functionality of their vascular structures in these organoids by looking at perfusibility of dextran. And they actually observed the presence of FITC dextran in their ETV2-induced uh, CD31 vasculature in their vascularized human cortical organoids suggesting that there's actually a vascularized network, a perfusible network in these organoids. And so their dextran experiments show that these are functional. They're, they're functional vascular networks. The next thing they wanted to do is to expand on the function even more. And so they wanted to see at day 30, after the ETV2 was induced for about 12 days, whether the vascular human cortical organoids actually are bigger and more functional than their counterparts. And indeed, that's kind of what they saw. So over the course of differentiation, the, the results showed that the ETV2 vascularized organoids actually increased the size of the, the human cortical organoids by supporting the, the diffusion of oxygen. And, you know, they also did a bunch of single cell analysis, kind of like dovetailing on what we just talked about, right? Single cell is everywhere these days. It's such a powerful technology that's being incorporated to, into pretty much every pipeline, right? A lot of folks are just replacing RNA-seq with uh, single cell expression analysis, right? Just because it's a much more fine-tuned analysis that you can use for your, for your whatever you're doing, right? And so they use single cell expression analysis to actually confirm that the, the neural tissue in their vascularized human cortical organoids was actually more advanced than their control. They actually showed that these vascularized cortical organoids can have some characteristics of the blood-brain barrier, although the maturation wasn't super advanced when it comes to that. But, you know, it was, it was a pretty decent start. And finally, you know, kind of building on functional analyses, they actually transplanted these vascularized human cortical organoids into mice to actually see if the mouse vasculature would integrate with the human cortical organoid vasculature, and it did. So I think it's a pretty comprehensive study, you know, it's a, it's a nature method study showing that you can take the next step when it comes to vascularization of human organoids. And I think this is a really important problem. It's, it's kind of preventing organoids from taking that next step and becoming, you know, bigger and better. And I think this is a, it's a, it's a first step towards that. Yeah, man, this is a trip, as you alluded to with the Alice Song uh, reference there, 
because I think we keep coming back to Alison, Alison, because the brain waves, right? And now if you have the vessels and you have the advanced differentiation potential in these organoids, you know, what are the roadblocks? What do we need? Glia? I mean, what do we need before we have these things, you know, with the potential for, uh, you know, I don't want to call them thoughts, but neural <laughs> connectivity and, you know, something in a dish. So it's, it's a trip. And I have to say, you're speaking my language. I, I, I am very familiar with ETB2. I was on a story showing induction of endothelial cells with ETB2. It's like a master switch for the vascular system. So I, I like this, a very elegant, simple approach, not simple, I mean, complex, whatever the simple endpoint and a comprehensive, like you said, analysis, but wow, a rune brains in a dish. What? Hey, man, you know, that's uh, <laughs> it's a fun topic to think about. Right. I mean, of course, this is something I brought up with Dr. Matri, right? Like these things are becoming pretty advanced. Right. So you have vascularization like in this paper and the, the neural the neurons are able to mature even more. Right. So, again, I kind of keep harping on this point, but it's something we got to think about. You know, there's you know, remember Dr. Matri has is he's holding a conference about, you know, the next step in brain organoids and whether we should be considering the, you know, the consciousness of these things, right? I think we're super far away from a real brain in a dish, but, you know, it's a fun thought experiment. Yeah, super far away, but one step closer. You know, the vascular tree, it's for the blood, Arun. Did you know that? I, I, I did. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm coming back to the blood. I'm sorry. Like I said, it's, when it gets close to Halloween, I like become this obsessed with the blood. And that's not going to stop here, but it makes sense because it's a good narrative we got going here. We start with the blood. We go to the vascular tree. And we're back to the blood, centered back to the blood. This is very therapeutic, though. I don't want to downplay this story. It's important. Um, this is more about the therapeutic end, not the developmental. We're talking about hematopoietic cell transplantation, okay, which is the stem cell therapy. It's the gold standard. We're all chasing that in our cell therapy uh, ambition here. It's cured a, a lot of hematological malignancies, you know, cancer, but all these other hematological malignancies as well, beta-thal, you can imagine sickle cell, etc., um, but the key there is that you need to have a, a matched donor, right? A human leukocyte antigen or HLA matched donor. Uh, good if it's a related donor, they're happy to give. You can go on with even an unrelated donor, but uh, it's tough because it's tough to find a related donor, um, even when they're willing, because, you know, there's not always a match. Uh, and even with the unrelated donor, less than half, of those uh, who, who need a transplant can find someone with a HLA match. So this is actually, uh, the good news here is that the umbilical cord, which everyone's going crazy about cord blood, whether they should save cord blood, and it's for this purpose because it's important and a validated uh, resource for allogeneic uh, hematopoietic cell transplant. Um, it has a lot of advantages. One, it's relatively plentiful. There's a lot of donors. Every time a baby's born and the core blood's not saved, it goes to a registry where it can be used um, if it's, you know, allocated to the registry by the parents there. Uh, but specifically, it has a lot of uh, advantages related to the cells themselves. They have less stringent HLA matching requirements, presumably because they're kind of naive. So there's a decreased risk of 
um, graft-first host disease. Uh, and there's a lower relapse rate amongst patients that receive cord blood uh, relative to those that re receive unrelated donor bone marrow. Um, so it's like more effective. It takes better. Uh, and, you know, the, these two reasons, we, we would think that cord blood is, is you know, the great gift that we, we move forward, we've solved the problem, but the problem is there's not a lot of stem cells in these cord blood doses. There's not a lot of blood in the cord blood to begin with, and while the cells are really powerful and potent within that blood, there's not a lot of them. So this can delay hematopoietic recovery. A lot of times you need to put two doses, so from two donors, two cord blood bags into one patient in order to get uh, disease resolution. So. What's the uh, holy grail there? In hematopoiesis, the holy grail has been for a long time. How do we self-renew ex vivo hematopoietic stem progenitor cells? And we've thrown the kitchen sink at this. You know, there's been a lot of cytokine-mediated expansion strategies, and they work uh, in expansion, but you get a lot of differentiation. So you, you lose the self-renewal of these cells. And uh, the group that this paper came from, Colleen Delaney, her lab um, in the past with Erwin Bernstein at the Hutch, they've, they've used engineered notch ligand to increase the absolute number of these CD34 positive hematopoietic stem progenitor cells that are available. And this, uh, as well as other factors like SR1, the stemogenin 1, and others, have been evaluated in clinical trials, and they've shown to be safe. Um, and effective in reducing time to hematopoietic recovery, and they can expand cord blood cells ex vivo also, at least this SR1, for example, and others can expand uh, the hematopoietic stem cells ex vivo that have re robust repopulation capacity. But none of these strategies, none of the ex vivo strategies are able to m avoid completely the substantial differentiation of these hematopoietic stem progenitor cells, ex vivo. So, you know, you lose the, the self-renewal capacity of these cells, and none of these are also applicable for adult bone marrow-derived hematopoietic stem cells. All right, so why? Why can't we do this? Well, a lot of these ex vivo expansion approaches are done in tissue culture dishes, okay? They're hydrophobic polystyrene flasks for the most part which is an environment, this hydrophobic environment in particular, that's very different from the in vivo niche, which is a 3D environment that's dominated by hydrophilic, and get this, zwitterionic cell membrane lipids. I didn't know what zwitterionic was until I read this paper. I still hardly know. But the important thing here is that the group leaders here, which the study was led by Xiaoyi Jiang, who's in the... Um, Department of Chemical Engineering, presumably making this zwitterionic stuff that they used, and Colleen Delaney, who previously in Erwin Bernstein's lab used this technology to expand uh, hematopoietic stem progenitor cells, used the engineered notch ligands. All right, so what they hypothesized here, uh, and you can imagine, following from what I told you in the intro, is that if they used a 3D culture microenvironment that had a super hydrophilic matrix, that that would be more suitable for ex vivo HSPC, hematopoietic stem progenitor cell expansion, because it looks like the niche, right? You put them in the home that they, that looks like what they, where they live, and they're going to grow the, the way they grow in that environment, right? So that's the idea 
And the way they did that is they use this degradable zwitterionic hydrogel. And with that, bingo, they achieved substantial expansion of a phenotypically primitive CD34 positive uh, hematopoietic stem progenitor cell from either the cord blood or the bone marrow. So this is greatly expanding the, the kind of cell types that you can, or systems you can use this for. Um, led to a 73-fold increase in long-term hematopoietic stem cell uh, frequency. That's big, you know, 73-fold. There have been a lot of other groups that have, you know, caused this expansion. Of course, it's in similar uh, expanding, you know, 20, 30, but 73, it's the most that I've seen reported. And every fold is huge because one stem cell can reconstitute the entire hematopoietic tree, right? And that's what they show, that these cells were capable of hematopoietic reconstitution for as long as 24 weeks in these immunocompromised mice. Um, and mechanistically, they showed that the, the, it may work, that the zwitterionic hydrogel may work by inhibiting the excessive reactive oxygen species that are typically produced. Right? So, I mean, hey, we started with a story that talked about unpacking the fetal liver, then we talked about the vascular tree, and now we're talking about an ex vivo approach that's very, approach that's very therapeutic for expanding these cells uh, and using them. This is something that I'm, I'm pretty sure is going to be in uh, therapeutic practice relatively soon because it's a desperate need for it, and it seems like a really, you know, practical option for achieving an important end. Yeah, I mean, my eyes keep on going back to that number, 73, 73 fold, right? I mean, I'm not a blood guy, you're a blood guy, but you know, that that just seems phenomenal. Yeah, Do you think that's this- banging, Arun, that is banging. That, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that's that's crazy. I mean, like you're saying, you know, I think a limitation has been getting these things to scale up to the level that you need for actual clinical transplant, you know, clinical purposes. And I think we finally might be at that point, you know, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, breakthrough, it's been a lot, you know, SR1 in particular, there's been a lot of stories along these lines, and this isn't the first. I like in particular the whole 3D hydrogel angle. It's the way I think that the whole corporatization or industrialization of these therapeutic products is going to go, bioreactors, these 3D substrates, because... It's more effective, and I think that it's going to allow, like you said, the scale. So I'm just waiting to see who's going to get rich off of this and how many people are going to be cured, and I'm excited about it. Scalability, you know, it's something we talked about with uh, Paul Burge last, you know, a couple weeks ago too, right? That's that's the limitation. If we can scale these things up in bioreactors, for example, you know, I think the sky's the limit. If we can keep them alive, we can keep them functional. I think that's, you know, that's a fantastic thing. So we're going to move on to uh, an organ that doesn't get too much love, at least on this podcast, the rectum. Yep, the rectum. So we're going to talk about patient-derived organoids that can predict response to chemotherapy in metastatic colorectal cancer patients. And this is coming from the group of Emil Vost and also Hans Klevers over overseas in the Netherlands. So we know that chemotherapy is a backbone for anti-cancer therapy, and it's improved the life expectancy for tons and tons of people around the world. But of course, you know, a large fraction of patients don't always benefit from the treatment and still experience some side effects. Like, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked to Paul Burridge and his focus is on using 
stem cells to evaluate the cardiotoxic side effects of some chemotherapeutic compounds like doxorubicin, for example, right? So genomics has facilitated patient selection for targeted therapies, but it hasn't always been successful for chemotherapy in part because chemotherapy isn't completely understood when it comes to the specific mechanisms of action. A lot of drugs like doxorubicin, they target a whole bunch of stuff, so they're not super specific a lot of times. There are some clinical parameters that can, you know, help provide prognosis, but most of the proposed biomarkers aren't currently being used to predict chemotherapeutic treatment outcome in the clinic. And previous attempts have used patient material to determine treatment responsiveness, but haven't always been successful because of long turnaround times, poor scalability, or low success rates of, you know, creating patient lines, right? So personalized cancer treatment for chemotherapy isn't all, you know, it's, it's getting there. It's not quite there yet. And so we need new and predictive assays to actually help match patients to the treatments that, you know, they should receive, right? And so in come these patient-derived tumor organoids, or PDOs. Of course, Hans Cleavers is an author on this paper, so certainly we're going to be talking about organoids in this paper, for sure. So patient-derived tumor organoids, or PDOs, which are cultures of tumor cells that can be derived from individual patients with a pretty high success rate, and they can be expanded indefinitely, which and they can recapitulate the morphological and genetic features of the original tumor, which is super important. And some studies actually suggest that these PDOs can mirror the clinical responses of individual people to therapy. So really close, going closer towards that holy grail of you know, personalized cancer therapy. So these folks actually used a multi-center perspective observational clinical study to determine the feasibility of using these PDOs as a way to predict who should receive what chemotherapeutic treatment for colorectal cancer in particular, CRC. So they used this tumoroid study as a multi-center study focused on regimens that are commonly used in colorectal cancer. So some of these include standard of care chemotherapy, including uh, fluorouracil or 5-FU, or capoketabine, an oral prodrug of 5-FU, in combination with either oxaliplatin, you know, which they called FO, or irinotecan, FI, or irinotecan alone. And so the objective was to develop an assay to actually see if they could accurately identify non-responders and responders to chemotherapy. So they included 61 different patients in the trial, and they actually were able to uh, conduct 67 biopsies to create their PDOs, their uh, patient-derived tumor organoids. So they had a 63% PDO success rate, which is I don't think it's too bad. 40 out of 63 cultures were able to actually grow these PDOs. And in most cases, the PDOs were established before the, the start of the treatment, right? And so they found that the frequency of the known genetic drivers of colorectal cancer was uh, similar between the different treatment cohorts. And it was pretty similar to a clinical study that they uh, you know, alluded to a couple times uh, focusing on colorectal cancer, suggesting that the, the study is a looking at a representative population of patients. So the first thing they did was look at arenotecan monotherapy, and they tested 10 PDOs from 10 different patients who were actually treated with arenotecan. Five of the PDOs were derived from uh, lesions that were cla uh, classified as you know, progressive disease, and five were derived from lesions that were classified as a stable disease. 
and all the PDOs were exposed to the active metabolite of arenotecan, SN38, for six days. And then they did a pretty relatively simple experiment. They just looked at the growth rate of these of these tumor organoids in response to the drug, drug exposure. And, you know, I think this is really cool. They found that just, you know, 3.2 nanomolar was able to elicit the largest window of effect. And specifically, the PDOs from the SD or stable disease patients were more sensitive to the drug than the PDOs from the progressive disease patients. So these data, you know, the data suggests that the PDOs can have some predictive value, at least for arena TCAN monotherapy. And the other cool thing was the assay only needed around 5,000 cells, so really nothing at all. And you can screen you know, these things within about two weeks. So they also looked at combination therapy and FU arenotecan combination therapy, and they're able to show pretty much the same thing. These PDOs can predict you know, response for combination therapy too. But I actually think one of the most important things that they did in this, this paper was show a negative result. So you know, kudos to science translational me medicine for being all about you know, negative data. I think it's phenomenal. So they're actually sh able to show in the, in the last portion of the paper that there are some PDOs that don't predict the response to uh, uh, 5-FU and oxaloplatin combination therapy. So two of their therapies were able to work you know, in terms of the PDOs can actually predict the patient response, but one of them didn't. And, you know, I'm I, I'm a big fan of this. I actually think we should have more negative data in papers because I think it's super important. It helps you look at the entire story. And so props to, you know, these folks and also props to the publisher for actually being cool with having this much negative data in a publication. It's, it's, it's refreshing. It's really refreshing to see. Yeah, that's strong, uh, and I appreciate that, especially in light of this other story I saw. I mean, you say that we don't give any any run to the rectum, but today's the day for you, colorectal peoples, because I saw another story in Nature Medicine, and to your point there about the negative result, um, this didn't have that. So I don't know whether or not it was embedded in there somewhere and they didn't report it, or what? But this is a story I got to give the run to because it came out of MSK here, stateside, right next door to me, Memorial Sloan Kettering from Charles Sawyers and J. Joshua Smith. And get this, you want to laugh? Hans Clevers. <laughs> yep, he's on this paper too. You know, he's a bit promiscuous when it comes to the organoids, but he pretty much invented them. So you got to give it to him. This story that was interesting is the same thing as you said. Essentially, the same, similar amount of patients, 41, though, where you had 63, I think, or something like that. Similar idea, predicting the response. Uh, the one wrinkle, I would say, that they, they had them ex vivo, showing they predicted or correlated with the patient response and clinical response, but also then put them in vivo into mice, showing that they had like a kind of ex vivo, then in vivo in NSG mice kind of double double your pleasure type thing but yeah same idea except minus any negative result just saying hey it works so i'd be really interested to see where hands stands when it comes to these two stories uh, i'm sure you know he was in the middle on both so i don't want to i don't want to put him on the spot but like you said it's cool to see when someone comes out and says hey it worked but, you know, it didn't work completely because nothing ever works completely, does it, Arun? Yeah, I don't know. I don't think it does, right? I and mean, we're getting there. You know, these, these organoids are getting better. They're becoming more vascularized. They're becoming more advanced. They're, be 
becoming sentient. No, I'm not <laughs> no, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. I'm telling you, you know, that's not true. Well, you don't know that. <laughs> we gotta, we gotta see about advanced. that. There might be some uh, organoids in space that are plotting a takeover. I mean, for all we know. But here on Earth, we're done with the roundup and moving on to the interview. But first, we got a word from stem cell technology. This week, we'd like to remind our listeners about cancer stem cell news apropos to our guest and many of the Roundup stories. This is one of stem cells' free weekly scientific newsletters. Cancer stem cell news summarizes all the latest research, news, jobs, and events in cancer stem cell research and delivers it right to your inbox every Wednesday. Save time and keep current with cancer stem cell news Subscribe for free at cancerstemcellnews.com. All right, guys, today we have for you Dr. Stefan Angie. He's professor and associate dean of research in the Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy at the University of Toronto. Dr. Angie is an expert in the field of signal transduction, and his lab uses proteomic and genomic technologies to examine how the Wnt and hedgehog pathways function in normal and pathological contact texts. They study the molecular mechanisms of Wnt and hedgehog signaling and develop therapeutic molecules that target these pathways to control the renewal and activation of stem cells in cancer. Dr. Anji, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Welcome. The pleasure is uh, all for me to be here. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that. We're having a lot of pleasure having you. Let's start by uh, just breaking into your uh, research focus there in the lab. Could you give us a general overview, please? Yeah, so my lab over the last uh, 13 years or so has been involved in dissecting the molecular mechanism of all the wind uh, growth factor. The wind family of growth factors is functioning. So we're employing um, genomic and proteomic technologies in order to identify novel components of these pathways, trying to understand the normal mechanism by which signaling function, how the cell respond to, to these growth factors. But we're also trying to understand the nature of mutations. So um, the wind pathway uh, and the hedgehog pathways are, are uh, critical during embryonic development uh, to uh, shape uh, the, the, the organisms, and it's often this, these same pathways that are mutated and functioning uh, erroneously in human diseases such as cancer. So understanding all these pathways are hyperactivated in the context of cancer is one focus of the lab. And more recently, we're getting really excited about degenerative diseases and regenerative medicine where uh, these same pathways are hypofunctioning, so there's not enough activation and we're creating solutions and therapies to maybe uh, activate this pathway in a very rational manner in order to uh, maybe um, exploit the promise of regenerative medicine. Yeah, you talk about regenerative medicine, and that's very du jour. You know, that's where what people think about, I think, when they think of cutting-edge medicine nowadays. And signal transduction, in contrast, that's as basic as it gets. You know, everything is predicated on signaling in life, period. Uh, and all the cutting-edge pharma properties that are currently, you know, in use, making billions of dollars a year, those are all built on discoveries that were made in the more heady days of signal transduction, I feel, you know, that are kind of decades past. Um, maybe, I don't know, this is just my impression, you might correct it, but my impression is that we've kind of reached, or we may be approaching peak pharma. 
and we're looking towards alternate approaches towards addressing disease, or at least we're diversifying our tool set to include a lot of other approaches that are more kind of mimetic of bi biology, you know, the CRISPR, the CAR-T, the antibodies, biologics. It seems like we're trying to leverage kind of biology's own tools to address the aberrant biology. So broadly speaking, and you kind of alluded to it there with your current interests, where does this kind of basic signal transduction study uh, and, and appreciation, where does that fit into this shifting modern scientific paradigm? What is the cutting edge of signal transduction in science nowadays? Well, you know, I think, you know, I think you're, you're touching a good point. I think there's been a lot of activities to try to, to develop therapies where pathways are hyperactivated, uh, lots of cancer therapies, lots of small molecules, antibodies trying to uh, bring signaling down, right, when it's hyperactivated in cancer. The way I, I think about it, though, is that there's always a flip side of things. And whatever you learn studying these pathways when they're hyperactivated and trying to target them, I think you can leverage all this to try to uh, reactivate these pathways when there's not enough signaling in, in degenerative conditions. Mm. Um, and, and you mentioned the, the advance, the technological breakthrough that have happened in, in the last few years, and it's often the case, right? So uh, whenever there's a huge technological breakthroughs, um, it seems that we're making a big leap forward, right? So the advent of CRISPR to engineer um, T cells, for example, uh, and to uh, design therapies to get at the root and actually correct uh, genetic information in situ, I think is very exciting. Um, and, and also, I think the field of protein engineering, right? Uh, the Nobel Prize was awarded last year to uh, phage display, right? So now it's possible actually to sample billions of molecules in a test tube in vitro to find antibodies or other affinity reagent for targets of interest and, and, and create, you know, basically the, the, the activity that you want, right? So um, I think the, the field of protein engineering uh, coupled with functional genomics information, I think it's very powerful. Hmm. So Dr. Angie, your uh, recent work has focused on some particularly lethal cancers such as glioblastoma and pancreatic cancers, for example. And in fact, these cancers are associated with some of the worst possible prognoses and treatment options are pretty limited after diagnosis in a lot of instances. So why are these cancers so lethal? What are we missing when it comes to actually developing effective treatments for, for these types of cancers? Yeah, so uh, one area of my lab is dedicated to this high fatality cancers. So pancreatic cancer and glioblastoma, um, you know, the, the prognosis uh, for, for these cancers, unfortunately, is very low with about 10% uh, survival rate for five years, right? So uh, they're extremely aggressive and lethal. And the reason for this is often that they're diagnosed very late in the course of the disease, right? They're, um, the, uh, the patient usually present very late. So uh, the other reason, I think, is that we have limited therapeutic options for these diseases, right? So there's not been, you know, a key targeted therapy identified for pancreatic cancer or for GBM. Um, and, and this is where my work and the work of my team is focusing with a lot of collaborators is to try to identify novel weaknesses 
of these cancers in order to maybe develop novel strategy for therapeutic intervention, right? So um, a few years ago uh, with the, the, the group of Jason Moffitt and Dev Sidhu, we, uh, we jump on the CRISPR screening bandwagon, if you will, and, and, and uh, leverage the expertise in functional genomics that, that, that Jason had to uh, basically screen a number of uh, pancreatic cancers that um, have a specific mutation in a gene called RNF43 that is related to the wind pathway, right? And we wanted to identify novel weaknesses uh, in that specific tumors. Um, uh, and we were able to, to identify one of their wind receptor, Frizzle 5, as, as a, a potential candidate for therapeutic intervention. And in that study that, that you're talking about, that I'm talking about, in, that was published in Nature Medicine a few years ago, we, we showed that we could develop a, a therapeutic antibody uh, blocking the activity of Frizzle 5. And we did that with Dev Sidhu, a protein engineer at the University of Toronto. Uh, and these molecules now are being advanced for uh, clinical um, development with, with, with some startup companies. Um, on the on the other disease we're focusing is on GBM and glioblastoma, one of the most frequent brain tumor. And we're doing this work with a neurosurgeon uh, at the Hospital for Sick Children, Peter Dirks, who was instrumental in, in um, uh, isolating and identifying the glioblastoma stem cell, the cancer stem cell. So with his help, uh, Peter, uh, has, we were able to get patient-derived stem cell from, from Peter's group that he, he is able to isolate when he does surgery on patient and, and through different collaboration that he has, he has a, a big collection of so-called patient-derived stem cells. And we're able to culture them in the lab and we're able to use the same technology that a, a genome-wide type of CRISPR approaches. But now on a personalized basis and basically sample a large amount of patient and try to find uh, vulnerabilities that are common to all of them, but also vulnerabilities that are uh, unique to different patients, right? And this is going to lead us to hopefully some some clues into how can we attack these these two these very aggressive tumors with new therapies. Yeah, I guess as a you know, it's our job, right? We have to come up with these hypothetical scenarios whereby we solve or you know gain insight at least into the mechanism of whatever molecular process, right? Whatever biological process. In your case, you're trying to understand what goes on with these cancers. And I think, you know, part of your job is you got to speculate. You've got to have this imagination of the solution. And I would say in my case, nine times out of 10, maybe 99 out of 100 even, my imagining of the solution, of the endpoint, of the way it works, or the, of the, or the solve, it, it's not on. It's wrong, right? But one out of 100, maybe it's right. I wanted to ask you, when you think of pancreatic cancer and glio and think of the, how devastating it is as a disease and how few treatments there are, you must at some point imagine this is the way, ultimately, 10 years, 15 years, whenever it is, this is the way that we're going to address this disease. Whether or not you know, that is the case, how it ends up being, I would ask you to be brave and tell me, in your imagining, what's your plausible science fantasy of how we will ultimately solve glio and pancreatic cancer or these tough cancers? Is it going to be little, you know, 
incremental advances that address a few patients? Are we going to have like a major leap forward uh, for these diseases that are going to provide a kind of threshold watershed innovation? What's your, your hope? What's your fantasy? Well, I, I think if you had asked me this question a few years ago, I would have said, you know, there's no secret probably, and you need to really find individual weaknesses for every patient or group of patient, and it's going to be incremental advances. But, you know, the, the revolution of the, the field of immunotherapy has really changed that, right, over the last few years, and that's been an amazing leap forward. Um, unfortunately, I think the success with, with immuno-oncology and these specific tumors are, are quite limited so far, but I think the more that we learn about immuno-oncology and the, the, the more we learn about which patient respond and things like that, I think that's going to be really important to bring these new advances to these diseases. Um, I think one limitation that, that we often face is also the heterogeneity of tumors, right? So, uh, you know, not, not, not only and uh, enter patient heterogeneity, but within a tumor, we now know, and especially in, in glioblastoma, that uh, many cells within the tumor are very heterogeneous, right? So although we may think that we're able to attack this specific clone within the tumor, then the, you know the, the other clones are, are left untouched and, and they contribute to the progression and the recurrence of the disease. So I think we're gonna need a more, uh, much more holistic um, and maybe combinatorial therapies to target these different clones within a heterogeneous tumor is going to be the way to go. And we're doing some work in, in the lab right now to try to tackle this problem. Hmm. So you had mentioned that you've jumped aboard the CRISPR-Cas9 bandwagon. It seems like everybody's done that these days. And it's definitely being used for some pretty incredible applications, you know, non-homologous end joining and, you know, HDR and making these custom cell lines and all sorts of things. But as you mentioned, you can use it for high throughput screens as well for cancer research. And your lab has recently incorporated genome-wide CRISPR-Cas9 screens to, to understand drug resistance and sensitivities for some of these cancers, such as glioblastomas, for example. So could you talk a little bit about that work in particular? And how do you think CRISPR-Cas9 might be able to kind of revolutionize cancer drug discovery in the next couple of years? Well, I would think it's already as revolutionized it in, in some ways, right? Uh, I mean, you know, we were about, I think, three groups uh, a few years ago that, that characterized uh, the essential genes of a few cancer cell lines, right? Uh, Brumel Camp in Europe, uh, the group of David Sabatini in Europe, and, and us with Jason Moffat and, and a few other investigators in Toronto, we, we sample and we apply the CRISPR-Cas9 technology to a, a number of, of cell lines and found what we call the essential genome in human that are required for the growth of cells, right? And we found a number of genes that were uh, core essential that we call them that are essential for the growth of every cells. So those are genes that attack fundamental genes, fundamental processes such as DNA replication and mitochondrial biogenesis. But within these screens, we're able also to identify so-called context-specific or genotype-specific essential genes that were only essential in the context of a certain genotype, right? So uh, only in the case of RNF43, pancreatic cancer, for example, or only in a subset of glioblastoma. And those, I think, are 
your therapeutically actionable targets uh, that, that are going to be very, very powerful. And now we know there's consortiums that have really taken over, right? So the Depth Map Project, for example, the Sanger Institute, they've done that for 600. And, and now I think the last count were over a thousand cell lines, right? And you're able to really start mining these databases and, and, and you know, make a prediction of new targets based on genotypes of these tumors. And this is academic, academic consortium, but we, we know that the industry they've replicated these efforts internally, right? So there's a lot of functional genomics that is going on to try to understand the, the genomic wiring of tumors. And, and this is already leading to new therapies. And so you talk about the power of these large consortia, and I feel like, you know, these days in, in academia and also in the industry, that's kind of the way to go. People are leveraging these massive data sets to kind of push forward novel treatments. Do you think that's really kind of the way forward for, for cancer biology as well and for cancer research? This is definitely a way forward, um, but I think there's always going to be room for experts in, in a certain disease, right, that really understand the intricacies of a disease, really have a, a, a specific system such as, you know, the work we've done with Peter Dirks on the glioblastoma stem cells, right? So being able to culture them, the know-how to, to culture these cells and to, to do these screens in patient-derived samples rather than cell lines on plastic, right? So I think it's going to be an integration of very solid biology, more understanding of the disease and, and tools and models and of these large consortia that maybe take a more um, high-throughput approach uh, to the problem. Yeah, I, it's interesting we talk about, you know, big data and precision medicine and tailored therapies and all of these things in the modern era that we're kind of living in right now uh, w with respect to cancer treatment. And, I mean, you've talked about the power of this approach looking at individual disease in the context of this genotype. You were just saying with your, you know, your forward screens with the CRISPR, but it, it kind of brings to mind to me the fact that we've got, you know, generations worth of cancer that we've been treating and it's a moving target we're treating it in different ways as the decades pass and now we're we've revised our view again and we're taking this precision approach does this kind of force the issue we got to take a look at all the data we've ever generated regarding cancer we got to take another look at every drug that's ever been you know in clinical trials that's failed in clinical trials maybe it's failed because it hasn't been the right subtype you know, the mouse that was growing the tumor that led us to the drug had a different heterogeneity than what you see in the patients that it was in. It just makes it more complicated in a lot of ways, right? Like we got to amend the inclusion criteria for future clinical trials. Are we going to bank all the tissue, every cancer, so that we have them as a reference? You know, what, these are all these questions that kind of put a lot of, I guess, pressure on the, the researchers to kind of up their game. It, it seems like a lot. What's your take on that? Yeah, those are excellent points, I think. Uh, you know, what we know now is very different from what we know 10 years ago, even two years ago, right? So uh, it, it's a moving moving field. I, I think the key, the solution, I think, is going to have to be to find a way to engage clinician scientists uh, a bit more, right? So to have better bridges between what's happening in fundamental cancer biology lab and in the clinic, 
right? So those, I think from what I see, there's a big disconnect of what is happening in, in fundamental cancer biology lab and, and in clinical research. And I think there's a, we need to have a better uh, concerted action plan, right? To uh, engage clinicians right from the beginning and to be able to translate a lot of these, these, these discoveries into clinical uh, trials. Um, I think that's going to be the, the next step that I think we need to, to address here. Uh, it's not easy though, right? I mean, it, those are two different groups. They don't necessarily always speak the same language, right? So how to do this is not clear. Everybody has a busy schedule. But I think we need to put more drugs. We need to put more um, strategies, more ideas about how to tackle these problems towards uh, the clinic, right? And, and stop having all these beautiful emerging results dying in lab notebooks. We need to make an effort to, to translate that better. And so you just mentioned about the power of clinician scientists, you know, these scientists who are, you know, dual trained in the clinic and have the clinical expertise, but also the basic science expertise to kind of bring a project forward and potentially translate it into a therapy. So what would you envision would be like the best uh, training scenario to create a new generation of, you know, clinician scientists who would be best suited to actually develop these next generation of therapies? So I, I think one way forward, and this is something that we're we're starting here at the University of Toronto, is to establish networks of drug discovery, right? So we have a, a new initiative at, at the University of Toronto called Prime for Precision Medicine. And the goal here is to really be cross-discipline, right? And to bring together uh, PIs from different faculties, right? Chemists and, and cancer biologists and clinician scientists and engineers to work together on a problem and to also have their trainees as part of this network, right? And to start and continue training uh, the next generation. But I think, you know, it's gonna take a multidisciplinary approach to the problem to make uh, the, the biggest leap forward. All right, well, yeah, this is big. That's our big future challenges, and I think we're moving in that direction. But I wanna go back to the ground floor now, uh, talk about Wint a little bit. You know, Wint, you love Wint. You love Hedgehog, too, but I bet you love Wint a little bit more. Everybody loves Wint a little bit more. I know Arun loves Wint. I got it. You like it? You like it? He's a fan. Cardiovascular Wint. I mean, let's be honest. Everything Wint. Wint does a lot of things. Uh, it's expressed in a lot of organs and tissues, the receptors. It's active. It does a lot of different things. Even the same ligand can do, like, 12 different things. Um, but it makes it tough, right? It makes it tough to target kind of aberrant wind signaling because you worry about off-target. Can you talk about how your lab is focused on targeting misregulated wind signaling in the context of cancer or other uh, pathological conditions? Yeah, so, you know, it's an excellent point, right? The wind pathway uh, evolved right at the beginning of multicellular organism, right? So the, the, this is a, a communication system between cells. So right when a multicellular organism arrived, there was a need for cells to talk to each other, to, to, to have a, uh, some type of, of, um, of plan, right? And basically, they're involved in pretty much every tissue in our body, right uh, from development, right? So it causes a huge problem when you want to target this pathway in the context of disease because they're, they're critical for the homeostasis of pretty much every tissue in our body. And, you know, this has been 
really difficult actually to develop therapeutics. It's a major roadblock. The, um, the, 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 the side effects and the toxicity associated with targeting this pathway is what has limited uh, the progression of different molecules in the clinic, right? I think of uh, the small molecule porcupine inhibitor developed by Novartis, for example. There was a, an antifrizzle antibody uh, with a company called Oncomed in the U.S. that showed great promise, but also, you know, there was a problem associated with bone, right? The, the, the patient had a defect in, in bone uh, homeostasis, fractures, and they had to stop trials and find some mitigation strategy. So, you know, I think one way forward is to be more specific, right? So there's 10 frizzle receptors, 19 different winds. So understanding the precise circuits involved in disease and, and targeting only that specific wind receptor that is driving the disease, I think is one way forward. And we certainly are making efforts and, and add ways to develop more selective uh, inhibitors of this pathway, right? We have uh, several frizzle antibodies that are selective for uh, the individual frizzle receptors. And, and really, we need more biology, right? More data to understand, you know, why do we have all these wins and all these frizzles and, and you know, which ones are important to target in the context of disease? Mm. Yeah, you recently had a, a project uh, that uh, was with uh, a collaboration with Dr. Sachev Sidhu's lab at UToronto. That was an eLife, this eLife story where you're looking at these tetravalent antibodies, you call them flags, that can recruit wind proteins, frizzled, and LRP56 in a manner that phenocopies the activities of winds both in vitro and in vivo. That's my brief summary poor though it may be, you show that they, they work for a lot of different things, you know, pluripotent, you did differentiation of pluripotent stem cells, you did some organoids because you got to do that. Um, also in vivo, seems like a powerful tool. How, how did that come about? Can you elaborate on the tool and how you came to that collaboration? Yeah, so th this is very exciting. I'm pretty excited about, about uh, this line of work. Um, Basically, we had we've been working uh, Dev and I over the last ten years in our teams to to identify antibodies for frizzle receptors and LRP uh, co-receptors and pretty much all the components of the wind pathway with uh, the goal in mind to block the activity of these proteins because we know that they're hyperactivated in cancer, right? And we had assembled a collection of over five hundred antibodies. Uh, and this is made possible by by the, the power of phage display and protein engineering. And Dev is is certainly a world expert in that in that front, right? And a couple of years ago, I I basically said, well, we have all these antibodies, so it may be interesting to see if we can use protein engineering to actually activate the pathway rather than blocking it, because you know, as I said in the introduction it would be really clever to maybe manipulate and activate the wind pathway in a very precise way in order to activate stem cell activity, right? So when we think of wind, what they do really is they're big glycoproteins, right, uh, that uh, bring together a frizzle receptor and a LRP 
five or six co-receptors. So they're really acting as a, a dimerizer, right? They're bringing these two co-receptors at the surface, and this is what kickstart intracellular signaling. So, you know, I, I follow the, the antibody world a bit, and, and there's a big trend now on bispecific antibodies, right? Mm -hmm. So where one arm of the antibody targets one protein, the other arm targets another one. So I said to Dev, why don't we just try to make a, a bispecific antibody, one for Frizzle, one for LRP, and see if that's going to turn on signaling. So there was a, a postdoc in Dev's lab called Yu Yang Tao that is the first author on the on the eLife story. Uh, that and that was his project. He was very excited about this to try that, but he tried for the best part of two years, and basically it was very disappointing because nothing worked. Right, these molecules. They, they were still inhibitors, very potent inhibitors, hmm. single digit nanomotor, even picomotor affinity uh, potency to block the activity of the pathway, but they never turn on signaling. And, and presumably because the spatial orientation of the two arms was not um, uh, proper to, to be or compatible for turning on the activity of these proteins, right? So it was disappointing, but Here's a good example, I think, of the beauty of biomedical research, right? So we, Yu Yong is an extremely talented and creative uh, young investigator, and he basically tried all sorts of tricks, all sorts of configuration and modalities, and basically showed up one day and he says, I think I got it. Hmm. And basically he did this very clever trick to rather than putting the two antibodies on the same side of the FC, he decided to put the frizzle antibody on one side and to stick the LRP antibody on the other side of the FC. So presumably that extended the distance, right? Hmm. Uh, or the freedom of these two antibodies to recruit frizzles and LRP and, and it worked beautifully. And that, that really brought a tear to my eye, right? When a trainee actually brings results like that, it's very, very satisfying. So we, we played around with these configurations and modalities and optimized them, and we found that the most optimal molecule is a tetravalent molecule that has two frizzle binding site on one side and two LRP binding site on the other. And presumably, it, this models uh, the requirement perhaps for multiple frizzle and LRP molecules to be within one complex. Um, and, and we get activation uh, that is very similar or exceed uh, the natural protein. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the potential for these things, I think we see lots of potential. First of all, the, the world of organoids, as you guys know, is blooming, right? Um, everybody wants to grow organoid from different tissues. And in order to do this, you need wind proteins, right? You need uh, to activate the stem cell uh, and to, to, to maintain stem cell renewal. Uh, and, and basically people, in order to do this, they rely on, uh, historically they've been relying on conditioned media, right? From cell lines that secrete wind proteins. And this is the most active form of wind. Of course, we have a few purified wind that you can buy off the shelf from different company, but these don't seem to have the same level of activity and they don't seem to work in all the all contexts of organoids. So people are relying still on conditioned media, and, and this comes with some limitation. First of all, you have to produce it. Uh, second of all, there's uh, batch to batch variation in activity. It's not consistent. 
you, you have to purify these uh, clinician media in the presence of serum. So if you do long-term organoid, the presence of serum sometimes doesn't work well. It's not compatible. The cells would start differentiating and stop growing. So, you know, we've showed that our flag molecules are actually, uh, they, they, they can replace completely the need from, for uh, the, the condition media. So there's a defined protein, right? That, that uh, we can drop into, into uh, media and and uh, replace the, the the wind proteins in the media. So, uh, and we've showed that we can culture organoids from uh, pretty much every tissues we've tried using the, this agent. So I think this is going to be a, a big potential for these molecules. The other one is the, the the field of cell therapy, right? So we know that there's a a lot of excitement about cell replacement therapy, right? So. Starting with IPSL or human embryonic stem cells, and and differentiating in vitro these these pluripotent stem cells into the lineage of interest into functional cells that you can then transplant for clinical application. Well, it turns out that a lot of the branch point, right, the choice of differentiation towards this lineage versus this lineage, well, the wind pathway is involved, right, mm. and and you know people are using now GSK3 inhibitors. A small molecule, the Chiron compound, for example, that activate the pathway by inhibiting GSK3. It's a very nice small molecule, but it activates non-specifically beta-catenin signaling and also pretty much every developmental pathway. Right? GSK3 is involved in androx signaling, it's involved in nut signaling, it's involved in insulin signaling. So you can imagine that there's a lot of mixed signals in the cell, and this maybe leads to some confusion and the branch point of cell differentiation may not be always optimal, right? So I think we have like an opportunity here to use our specific flag molecules that target only one frizzle, right? That may be expressed at the surface of one progenitor and attack and activate this progenitor specifically to be a lot more precise in these cell therapy project and, and, and uh, add to the arsenal uh, that, that we have. Well, I just, I just wanted to, to, to share, I think, what is perhaps the most exciting uh, avenue for these molecules for me, uh, and, and it's to use them for drug, right? And it's to use them for therapy, to directly manipulate stem cell activity in situ in the body, right? So uh, uh, cell therapy is one thing, but if we are able to unleash the potential of endogenous stem cells and tissues, in a controlled fashion and in a, in a very precise way, I think we're gonna be able to uh, manipulate the endogenous repairability of a lot of tissues and promote uh, faster repair and, and recovery after injury. So I think uh, this is the most uh, exciting aspect of these molecules in my mind. So Dr. Anji, I'm very excited that you talked about the GSK3 beta inhibitor because that's something that I actually, uh, you know, use pretty much every single day for my cardiac differentiations. You know, we have to inhibit a GSK3 beta, activate wind signaling for to initiate, you know, the mesoderm specification and, you know, move 
the cells down a cardiac lineage. So definitely there's a lot of work that needs to be done for improving in vitro differentiation protocols, whether you're using two-dimensional differentiation or organoids. So do you think your, your flag antibodies, because they're more specific, you know, perhaps a more targeted activator of Wnt, do you think they would be more useful for, for certain differentiation protocols? And in general, what do you think we should do just to, to improve differentiation and make it more reliable across the board? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, there's, there's a couple of problems with using these these small molecules. First of all, they stay in the, in the tissue. They stay in the cell, right? So if you were to transplant the cell, the, the GSK3 inhibitor, which are very potent activator, they would go, right, with the, with the cells into the, the body. So it's not clear if this would be uh, bringing some, some negative um, impact, right? But, but I think the, the real key here is to be more precise, right? So understanding which frizzled is at the surface of the progenitor at a given stage and, and to be able to precisely and rationally activate this frizzle receptor at the surface of this specific progenitor, I think is going to clean up a lot of the, 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 the differentiation problems, right? So we're going to be a lot more precise, more homogeneous differentiation, uh, maybe more functional, right? Because at the end of the day, uh, what matters is functional cell types that are pro you're producing. So we're testing a lot of this right now in different uh, contexts, but I'm pretty excited about the, the future of these type of molecules. Yeah, the the future looks really bright, uh, and no coincidence, you're 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 betting on it. You started a company called Antler A. It develops antibody-like products. I presume that's kind of capturing this technology with the tetravalent and similar approaches. Um, a lot of scientists, you know, myself, I can speak for at least, fantasize about this idea of transcending academia, starting a company. What's that like for you? You know, the company itself, it's like Antlers is in the name, and there's Antlers in the branding. So what's that like? Who comes up with the name and the branding? Do you hire someone for that? Are you guys sitting around a room with your postdocs like, oh, we'll put Antlers, it's cool. What, what percentage of your effort do you allocate? Is it a huge time suck? How is becoming a corporate crony change your everyday experience <laughs> as a scientist? Do your postdocs hate you now? <laughs> well, this is, this is an interesting question. So, Antlera uh, Therapeutics is, uh, yeah, we started this company about a year and a half ago now. So, the name is actually came through discussion between myself and Dev and, and some other uh, trainees. Basically, uh, interestingly, antlers of moose and deers are the fastest regenerative tissue of mm -hmm. the animal kingdom, right? So they can grow up to one centimeter to two centimeters per day. And to me, that's quite striking. And, and there's actually a paper you can find in the literature that suggests that wind vitiquitin signaling is important for antlers regeneration, <laughs> right? So I was looking at all this, I'm like, hey, that, that's pretty cool. The other thing is antlers. If you look at the our modality, the antibodies, they actually look like antlers mm. a bit, right? So the logo of the company looks like antlers. And and most importantly, perhaps, it's a great Canadian North symbol, right? So the company is in Toronto. So uh, I thought it fit quite well together. That now, is a perfect fit, uh, if you ask me. Yeah, I think, I think that's good. It's as good as any other name, right? It's not going <laughs> to matter in the end. But uh, I think 
related to your question about uh, academia now doing uh, or commercially commercializing some some of their ideas I to me that's quite exciting right so I, I love my work I, I have I would not trade that for anything it's a great uh, place to be lots of young talented investigator in the lab I've been doing that for 13 years now right so I kind of get it right so you have committee meetings you have lectures uh, so it's good it's always good to do something new once in a while and I have zero background in business right so uh, now I'm learning a lot about the business side of things uh, we surrounded ourselves with uh, very uh, good people on the management team uh, Dev of course is a much more has a long history of uh, entrepreneurship right I think it's that's the sixth company that is that is uh, creating uh, that's only my first, right? So uh, I'm having a lot of fun to understand, but I'm, I'm invested, yes, uh, because I believe in the idea. I think it's going to be, um, uh, you know, transformative on many fronts. I think we have unique molecules. Uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And if we can have an impact in the end, and this relates back to, to what I said uh, a few minutes ago, we need to make a better effort to try to push these new strategies into the clinic, right? Uh, there's too many things, too many com students committee meeting I've seen, right? Oh, this is super exciting, like student graduate, and it's over, mm. right? So uh, I think we need to uh, to do more to translate our ideas and our, our findings into clinical application and, and this is uh, my first steps into that, but uh, it's quite exciting. Time commitment, of course, um, you know, everything Everything takes time, but, you know, this is where you learn how to uh, manage your time properly and, and uh, you know, a little bit less sleep and everything is fine. Everything <laughs> is good. So, yeah, I think uh, we've come to the end of our Strictly Speaking Science conversation. I'm going to ask you a couple peripheral questions. First one uh, is, I love this question because it really is about science. And let's be honest, that's what we're here for. But it's a little bit more of a narrative. What was your greatest or m most memorable science revelation or surprise, the so-called aha moment? Or if you want to end on a depressing note, Dr. Angie, that's fine. You can tell us your greatest disappointment or a kind of negative result that maybe turned out to be transformative? Okay, um, well, there were a lot of memorable moments, but there's one that comes to mind that happened during my postdoctoral fellowship in, in Randy Moon's lab. So I, I was really interested in the early 2000 into um, developing and optimizing uh, protocols to purify protein complexes from vertebrate cells and then use mass spec to identify novel components. So at the time, these type of experiments were performed routinely in yeast cells because it was it's easy to grow a lot of yeast and, and that's what you need for such experiment to, to work well. But I was super lucky to have a very good friend, uh, Anne-Claude Jengera, that, that was also doing our postdoc in, in Seattle at the time in Rudy Abersel's lab. And she was really an expert in mass spec and doing these type of experiment. And then she was generous enough to share her knowledge and protocols and expertise and, and help me doing this. So anyway, this we got this to work and we were able to identify a, a number of new components of the wind pathway. 
But then there was a, a colleague next door uh, from our lab at, in Seattle called Ning Zheng. He's a world-class crystallographer, and he had worked out a beautiful crystal structure of the Col 4 DDB1, E3, ubiquitin ligase complex. And, and Ning knew that the, he, he was missing a component. He knew that you know, E3 ligases all have a, a substrate-specific receptor family, right? So the F-box protein, for example, for the, the color one E3 ligases and, and so on and so forth. And, and Ning knew that there must be a family of adapters that recruit specific substrate to the Col4 apparatus for ubiquitination. So I was chatting with Ning one day in the corridor and I was telling him about our mass spec approach. And he says, hey, I have this great project well, how about you try to find the, the, the substrate-specific adapters for the Col4 family? So we, we got going, we, we did this collaboration, and we isolated Col4 and the DB1 protein complexes. And sure enough, when we did the mass spec, we found this, this family of protein of about 50 proteins that are called the DCAF now, the DDB1 and Colin-associated factor family that work and function as the adapters for the, the Col4 apparatus. And among these members, they, they were Cereblon, right? So uh, Cereblon is the target of thalidomide and the imide drug, mm -hmm. the imid drugs that are being used for multiple myeloma, so billion-dollar drugs. And it's also the scaffold for the new field of Protax, right? So the engineered protein degradation field uh, use uh, molecules binding to Cereblon. And there was also another protein called VPRBP, which is the target of the, the viral VPR protein that is required for HIV infection. So, you know, this was a lot of things that come together very fast, and we, we published this paper in Nature in 2006. To date, that's the easiest paper that I published in my life. The, the, the review, review was straightforward, almost as is, right? We had a couple typos. And that was probably my most memorable moment of all. Wow. And the Yu, Yu Yong, the, the postdoc recently that discovered that and brought this new modality, the flag, is another one, another good example of moments that makes you forget all the bad experiences, right. Right? all the frustration, all the, uh, the days where you say, okay, I'm done doing this, right? So all you need is one of those and you forget everything. And in those moments, you kick open that door to a whole field, like you said. There's people making billions of dollars. I'm sure you're not seeing a penny of it, but you don't mind. But when you kick open that door, do you know it? Do you say, wow, we're in a space here now where there's going to be a lot of papers coming built on this. Do you feel it in that moment? Yeah, I think you feel it, right? Uh, and, and I think that's the key um, it, the serendipity, right? Being able to recognize when you have made a good observation, right? And I, I think not everybody can do that. Um, but but I, I think uh, at that point, I knew that we, we were onto something special. Hmm. So, Dr. Anji, as you just demonstrated, you're a collaborative guy, whether it's with your, your flag story or even back in the day, you know, you've always been able to collaborate with folks to, to take your science to the next level. But, you know, we're all fortunate to be able to, to stand on the shoulders of giants to get to where we want to be, right? So inevitably, you've got to have some scientific heroes. So who would those be? 
So I have many heroes, but I have two in particular that uh, I think I owe a lot of my career. And, and those are my, my two advisors, my two mentors in my life. So my PhD advisor, uh, Michel Bouvier, uh, is a world authority in the field of G-protein couple receptor pharmacology. And he is the guy that gave me the first chance, right? So I, in fact, he, he wasn't sure to take me on in his lab at the beginning, right? His lab was very crowded and, you know, I was not an A-plus student, so he was hesitating. But, you know, he took me on because I was persistent and I called him a couple of times and I said, Michel, I really want to come to your lab. And Michel has been a, an exceptional mentor. He's uh, probably the person that has the most energy that I think he's now the CEO of the the Institute for Research in Immunology and Cancer in Montreal. is a very diplomatic person, he's a team builder. Uh, he has the amazing ability to get people to work together. And I'm trying to, to uh, emulate that in a way. And the other, the other hero is, is my postdoc advisor, Randy Moon. Randy is the, one of the pioneer in the Winfield, is uh, um, an incredible track record uh, of publication. And, when when we we talk about this instinct and serendipity, Randy is a good example of that. He has this incredible knack to know very early in a project whether a result is important or not, or whether this would lead to something very good. Uh, the gut instinct, as people often refer to. So Randy had an incredible gut instinct. He was also very collegial. Uh, he shared pretty much everything with colleagues, right? He, I remember him sending 50 to 60 plasmids every week to, to, the, to the field, right? Um, and and that, that was before the, the advent of that gene, right? So uh, he had the technician that pretty much, that's half of our time was dedicated into sending cell lines and plasmids and other reagent to other people in the field. And I think that's really contributed to the collegiality that exists nowadays in the Winfield. And, and this is an incredible legacy, I think, for Randy. Wow. Scientific superheroes with scientific superpowers of collegiality and gut instinct. You know, I think the X-Men could do worse. Stefan Anji, <laughs> this is a really great conversation. Uh, we appreciate your time and your insight. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was great fun. That brings us to the end of our show. Another great conversation, this time with Stefan Anji, one for the archives. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Thanks for tuning in, guys. We'll be back in a couple weeks from Arun and I both. Thanks for tuning in.